Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Amen. Good morning. You know... Kathy had been gone for the last couple of weeks. Uh, having gone away with my, my daughter to, to have a trip. And so, you know, the first couple of days that she's gone, I, you know, I gotta be fair. They're pretty good. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're pretty good. I get to watch what I want to watch. I don't have to hear, honey, are you wasting time on that TV? Uh, you know, just, just to sit there and enjoy what I want to do. Then, the, then there's a reality that comes. She's coming home on Thursday. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you have to start thinking about she's coming home. And so you look down and you go, you know, I got to reduce the pile of clothes that are sitting there. I'm not going to do any ironing, but I am going to reduce that pile of clothes. Um, I want to make certain that everything at least looks clean. The bathroom, I got to quickly go through it. So she doesn't walk through and go, honey, worst, worst two words that you can hear. It's supposed to be one, but it just comes out. Honey, why did you do this? It's a whole sentence, but it's reduced in one word. Honey, and you can just hear it. One of the things that I know she loves is she loves the lines that a vacuum cleaner makes on carpet all right so when you come in and you and you run she wants to look down and go man you just did the carpet now if the dust is too thick i will dust all right but if it's a modicum and you can't see it all that strong not gonna get that not not gonna happen all right all of that to say there is a change dynamic because i know kathy's coming right let me ask you a question do you ever make a conscious effort to think about your life situation with the awareness that jesus might be coming does that impact your life at all does that encourage what you're thinking about your your sense of priorities and importance the the awareness that as you and i age you recognize, well, you know, all that, that time is a little short here. Um, I, I might not live as long as I already have as you celebrate your 39th birthday for the second and a half time. And you look down and go, wow, I'm going to see my Savior in a short period of time. And as we, we look and we recognize what's going through, do you ever think about your Savior? Well, I want to suggest to you, when we come to Mark chapter 12, there's a sense in which all of the questions that we are confronting are so foundational, key to Christianity, key to a submission to Jesus Christ, that they're, at their core, they're eternal kinds of questions. 
The first one that was asked, we, we looked at it last week, what's my responsibility to government? And sometimes we don't think that that's an eternal question, but I would suggest to you that it, it very much is. And the reason I say that is this, when Jesus answered, Jesus assumed or took the right to answer the question. He didn't ask Caesar. He told the followers what he expected of Caesar. There was a responsibility that they had to Caesar. He was telling them. Do you and I recognize that we have a sovereign God who's over all of the cares and the concerns that we have of governmental structure today? When you do your do and read your devotions and you come to those chapters in, in Matthew or the, all of the Gospels that talk about what's going to happen before Jesus returns, do you see them as frightening to you or do you see them as preparatory? Just like I know that Kathy's coming home at such and such a time on such and such an airplane and I need to be at the airport to pick her up. Jesus gives us warning signs, preparation to simply say, hey, I'm coming, I'm coming. These things are going to happen. I'm coming. And if he's taking the sovereign control of the world and telling us that government's important, not only do we serve government because we are citizens, but because we're citizens of the kingdom of God, we then, in obedience to him, serve. And so all of a sudden, even something that we asked last week becomes a foundational, eternal question. God's in control. God's watching over. Let me, let me remind you today, as you see all of the things, there will be a worse event than the Ukrainians and the Russians in the tomorrows. Plan on it. If anything happens with the Ukrainians and the Russians to, to heighten your fears, God made you aware of it early. He's in control. Live with the awareness of his control. But we come to a second question today, and we're, the question is simply this, uh, what about eternity? What's heaven like? What's going to be there? And so the Sadducees ask this second question today. And it's very important for us, so I'm, I'm asking you if you'll come and, and join with me in Mark chapter 12. Remember the goal of the, ver the variety of leaders. Last week we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians. Today we'll see the Sadducees and the scribes. Their goal is to try to trick Jesus. But they're going to ask them questions that are so foundational. They're not only the foundation to their theological understanding of life, but they're foundational to the control of God in their life. So join with me. We're going to start at verse 18. We're going to read to verse 27 of this first question. What about eternity? Notice it says, and Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow 
and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife. When he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven, for the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. One of the great things about Jesus is he has the ability to look at the variety of people who try to trick him up and, and stump him. And he pulls no punches of what they're trying to say to him or the behavior and trying to act. He will simply declare, you are wrong, knucklehead. And so we're going to come into this question this morning. Their goal is to trick them up. And, and family, one of the reasons we want to dig deeper in, on one level, you know the answer to this question. And we can study this, this and go, ah, well, I know exactly what he's saying. But you have a Christian reference point, and so you have some understanding. Let's, let's look at why the Sadducees were even asking this. What was their struggle? Why were they having this question to try to trick Jesus? Let me tell you a little bit about the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious and the wealthy elite of the country. They are the chief priest and his family. They are the key priests in the country. They all get a cut of, a, of the temple. And family, just like we'll talk about Disneyland being too expensive, the variety of costs to come to the temple to sacrifice and to be a part of a worship service there was all designed to, to bleed out, bring out as much finance as they can, and it all went to these men, the Sadducees. The Sadducees only held that there were five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's known as the Pentateuch, five books, all written by Moses. After that, they didn't believe that, that there were anything of significance in the Bible. If those rest of the Old Testament was true, they were secondary at best. There was no such thing as importance. So they only believed what they literally found true in those first five books. In which case, there was nothing that taught anything about the resurrection. So they believed once you died, 
everything that could be identified as you also died. So when we talk about our spirit or our souls going to heaven, in their mind, there was no opportunity for the mind, the soul, to ever be separated from the body, so therefore, we just simply died. Now, when you came to that conclusion, if you really believe that you died and nothing more lived on in eternity, would you be a Christ follower today? If you, it was done and over with, how would it affect you? How would it change you? Well, you can come up to any answer if you're going to die and do nothing with the rest of eternity and not be consequential to how you lived at all. And so we find that that's how they behaved. They were willing to kill Jesus. And over and over again, we find them planning, strategizing how to kill Jesus Christ. Let's get rid of him. Well, if you don't hold to an eternity, you can fudge on some of the rules. Over and over again, that's exactly what we find. We find the Sadducees are the ones in control. So when Jesus is crucified and put into a tomb, it's the Sadducees who wanted to guard the tomb to make certain that no effort is made that Jesus Christ would give the appearance of coming back. Whether he comes back or his body is stolen, they don't want any of that idea to come. It's the Sadducees. Now, it's the Sadducees who say they also have to kill Lazarus. Now, we've not mentioned Lazarus, but some of you do know. Lazarus is raised from the dead in John 12 at this very period of time. Lazarus is four days dead. Think about it. Four days dead. So long was he dead, so significant was the decomposition that the greatest thing that it said about him is he stinks all right and out of that decomposition jesus said lazarus come forth come out what does that do to your understanding of resurrection if you don't believe in that and you're dead and done all of a sudden, the Sadducees see that Lazarus has got to go also. The Sadducees hold everything. And now, think of Jesus. Jesus is known as the resurrection and the life. Everything about Jesus is based on the fact that he's going to come again. Why they guard his tomb? Because he said, I will come back. Now, I love the stupidity of the Sadducees. Please think about it. If someone has the power to open their eyes after three days dead, do you think really that they're going to use a Roman soldier to put him back in that ground? Do you really think that someone who has the ability to tell a four-day dead guy to come out of the tomb, that they're going to make an effort to kill that same Lazarus again and have any impact on his murder when the one who said come on out is still alive and all he'd have to say is come on back their logic is terrible but at the core of what they believe they believe that there is no such thing as a resurrection you're dead you're finished and you're gone 
So they use this idea of resurrection and its silliness, and they base it on an Old Testament concept called a Leverite marriage. A Leverite marriage was designed for families to pass both child and inheritance on to the next generation. Now, family, you and I marry for different ideas. I told you how important it was for me to make certain that the carpet shows the, the vacuum lines for one reason, all right? I didn't marry Kathy because of some contract. I married Kathy because the sun, moon, and stars are insignificant to who Kathy is in my life, all right? And I'm hoping that's why every one of you who said I do can say the same thing about your mate this morning. We don't, we don't marry because of some contract. We don't get married because, oh, we got to produce offspring and pass it on to the next generation. We married because we were in love. That's a new concept. And if we look down through the heritage of time, love came after marriage, not before. And they looked forward to the responsibilities that marriage often has to have a child, to see that child successfully enter the next generation, passing on to both community and family, someone worthy of your family name, and then giving that individual the heads up of family heritage, family inheritance, and family responsibility. So that was the, the idea behind it. And Leverite marriage protected that. The idea simply was if a man married, his brother, if he was unmarried, would then marry his, his sister-in-law, now widow. He would marry her, and the first child would go in credit to the brother. And all of the family responsibilities that the brother had would go to this first child. Any future children would go to him. And we now have the story as the Sadducees present it. This woman goes through seven husbands. All right? All eight of them now die and go to heaven in, in the story. Whose, whose responsibility, whose marriage is valid in eternity? Does she go back to the first one and the six who have sacrificed so that he could have a name now gets a wife for eternity and the six guys are left with nothing? Worse, what if she had to go to heaven and all seven of those husbands would have been under the care of that one wife? That wouldn't have been heaven, would it, women? All right? You'd be forever doing things. The first husband would say, where's my car keys? Second one would say, where's my wallet? Third one would say, I can't find a towel. She'd be always doing something because the men would lost it. And she had seven of them to look after. That wouldn't have been heaven at all. So they asked him. And the idea was simply this. Either he would have to agree that the concept is so ridiculous that it doesn't make sense, and in doing so, would give validity to the Sadducees. And when they give validity to the Sadducees, 
everything that he had been promising, the resurrection and the life, his own resurrection, the power that his work to forgive sins, all is finished, all is lost, because he now agrees with the Sadducees. You see how important this question now becomes. So it's, it's dynamic, it's vital that Jesus answers this question right and then verifies the rightness of his answer by coming out of the grave after dying on the cross. So we now see just exactly what's going on and how important this whole idea is. And so Jesus builds on his answer, and Jesus gives an answer, and that starts in verse 24. Simply put, he looks to the Sadducees and says, you don't know the Bible or God's power. Family, remember, they only held to five books of the Bible. When we pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we want to believe, any idea that you desire can be created. And that's exactly what we find happening. Family, it's one of the great reasons why the tough passages are important for you to hold precious. The ones that you can't fully explain and you have to ask around and it's a struggle for you to believe them, they're as important as anything that you can explain and find soft and easy, and, and that makes sense to you. The, the, the ones that you struggle with, because on the wholeness of God's Word do we build a consistency, even in the tough passages. And he looks down and says, you don't know your Bibles. You don't know what's going on. The Bible's substantial information about the world to come belongs to us. It's there. Now, we're not going to go into a, a long idea about heaven this morning. We've talked about that in, in worship services past. You can hunt it down by the website. We want to look at today because I want you to see the real joy of heaven is that we will be with the Father and with the Son. Please don't miss the importance of that. You and I, from childhood, if, if you've had a heritage in Christ, we would all talk about what heaven's like, and most of our thoughts, in fairness, are wrong. Understand, you're not going to get a mention in heaven that's yours. All right? You're not going to get one. Not talked about in the Bible. So consequently... Your tennis court at that mansion, or golf course, or, or fishing pond, or anything that you think is important for your life, it's not talked about in the Bible. So it's very important that we understand the greatest privilege that we look forward to is the presence of our Savior and the Father to whom we worship. All right? Now, family, I want you to understand how strong that is. We've said it from the pulpit before, but it's important that we bury this in. If I am spending eternity with my Savior Jesus Christ and with the Father who I get to see face to face, and together their presence is found in what I understand as 
hell. Hell becomes heavenly because of the presence of the Father and the Son. I want to be forever where they are. And if they tell me that I'll be satisfied there, even though everything about it is a question mark to me, then I am going to trust the power of God, and I'm going to trust the promises of Scripture and want to be there. All right? So out of that, we need to see that Scripture teaches us a number of great truths about heaven. It'll leave some question marks, but the key solution is, I will be with my Savior and with the Father. And where they are, I will be blessed and I will be happy because they have played or prepared a place for me. Verse 24 tells us we need to know our scriptures. We need to study. And even then, we trust the power of God. Notice, if you will, the second in verse 25. Present earthly experience is entirely insufficient to forecast divine heavenly realities. So in other words, what we do down here and what we like down here, the relationships that we have as we understand those relationships are going to be changed in heaven. Now, Jesus never said, you're not going to know those people. He just simply said they're changed. You're not, you're not going to have a marriage as you understand marriage. Does that mean you're not going to have a friendship? No, that's not what it teaches at all. But what you and I understand as fun or pleasant or positive is going to be different in glory. And we must understand that from the Bible's perspective. We can, we can see that humanity will, will spend an eternity in hell, will spend an eternity in heaven, but we don't know that from our side. We only know that from the supernatural expression as we find it in God's Word. And understand something. If we find and trust a human explanation more than we trust a biblical explanation, we're trusting the wrong thing. One of the popular ideas that you and I have seen over the last 20 to 30 years is you will see books often written by American believers that tell us about their experiences in heaven. What went on there? What songs were sung? What, what the Lord values? What colors there are? What, what expressions there are? Now, let me give you, I've read a couple of them, but I will give you the summary of Pete Slusher's evaluation of all of them corporately. You ready? Hogwash. And here's the reason why. If the Apostle Paul could tell us in 2 Corinthians that he was taken up to the third heaven, and with the Holy Spirit's aid, says, I saw great and wonderful things that I'm not able to express. Do you really think that someone without the aid of the Holy Spirit 
could really tell you what's going on in heaven, and we have trust that his or her statements are valid? We can't. If John, who tells us in Revelation that he was actually caught up to heaven, and often will use words like, like, how do you express an emerald rainbow? Think that through. How do you identify a rainbow? Isn't there a number of colors in a rainbow? And yet, when you think of an emerald, how many colors do you think of? He says, I saw something like an emerald rainbow. How, with the Holy Spirit's help, does he struggle with using experiences that you and I know, and he can't do it? Are we going to gain validity in trusting someone who is still stuck, if you will, on this side of the supernatural? And so Jesus calls them into question and says, that's not the way the supernatural is going to express itself. That's not the way heaven is going to identify itself. You cannot trust this side. The only information you, you ever can lay hold and have a certainty on is what God's Word tells you, because therein is the only information from this side that explains truth from the other side. I want you to notice in 26, he gives us one last one. He gives us the truth about resurrection. God speaks about those who have died in the past before us in the present tense. And please understand what an incredible encouragement that is. So in the burning bush of Exodus 3, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob and if he could say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he uses the reality. They're already long past as he's explaining this concept. But he uses and talks about them in the present tense. They're with me now. They're, they're, they're part of me. And in the eternities, they're as alive as you and I are. And family, doesn't that do an immense encouragement to those of us who have experienced the grief of a passing of someone that we've dearly loved, if they know and love Christ, we talk about them in the present tense, not the past tense. We talk about them as being alive and not gone. We look forward to seeing again face to face men and women who know and love and follow the Savior. And that gives us a confidence that no one else outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ can offer, because only in Jesus Christ do we have someone who says, I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus stills them with his answer. He now confronts the last group and the last question. And the question that is raised by this last group, the scribes, is what is my spiritual priority? 
Notice, if you will, we're going to begin reading in verse 28. We'll go down to verse 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have only said that he is one. And there is no one other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the soul, or excuse me, and all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Family, I, I want to set the stage here a little bit because you might be like the scribes. The scribes are, are sitting there listening as Mark writes the story here over the, <laughs> over the shoulders. They're, they're, they're listening to the dialogue between the Sadducees and Jesus. And Jesus has already said, I am the resurrection, and the scribes are the leaders in the concept of the resurrection and the confidence that the eternity is in existence. And they really liked Jesus' answer. And have you ever been the smug little kid in grade school when someone else got the question wrong and you knew you got the question right, what that did to you? And so you were going to raise your hand and ask another question just so that you could be the, 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 the suck-up, the good student in the class. And so they, they did the same thing here. And, and I want you to picture this idea as the scribes now come up and say, oh, well, then let's ask you a question. Now, the scribes are the very opposite of the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe any more than the first five books of the Bible. The scribes believed in all of the Old Testament. They considered themselves the biblical expositors of their time. Not only did they, they, they have confidence and study the minutia of all of Scripture, they would put it down in oral traditions. And in those oral traditions, the oral traditions soon gained power and authority of their own so that the past writings of other teachers, rabbis of the past, became so valid that they became equal to Scripture itself. And one of the great pastimes that the scribes had was to look and discern how many commands that there are in the Bible. You and I can't handle ten. They had 613 commandments found in the Bible. 365 negative. 248 positive commandments. They would go on to describe which is our heavy commandments and which are light commandments. A heavy commandment, if I'm at home, would have gone something like, make sure Kathy sees the vacuum lines in the carpet. Heavy command, all right? Light command, Wow, I only got one more load of laundry. Do I do it? Nah. 
Make sure she sees those lines, though. Heavy command, light command, all right? Now, in Scripture, they've done the same thing. They've looked down and go, these are important, these are lesser important. And they would argue upon that. And then the last of their great arguments was this. What one commandment is the top commandment? Which is the most important? Or which commandment would summarize all of the other commandments? And can't you see them all at their favorite coffee store, sitting there around in a circle and arguing as they come back, well, this is my favorite, this is the best, this is the... And they all worked hard to figure it out. And so they come to Jesus and do the same thing. What's the number one? Jesus is prepared for his answer. And he comes back to Deuteronomy 6.4, and he quotes a passage that they're very familiar with, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he adds, with all your strength. And he begins by telling them, we own, or we owe God everything. We owe him our heart or our emotions. Family, what would happen to your life? How would it be changed and affected? If you recognized your very emotional state was under the authority or owed to the authority of the Most High God. How would that, how would that affect you on a day-to-day living? How, how, would it, how would it affect your willpower to tell yourself, I need to trust the Lord, and then take that to prayer? He says, not only do you trust the Lord with all your heart, you trust Him with all your soul. Soul is a, an idea that covers virtually everything. In Genesis 1.1, God made man by doodling in the mud, and then he breathed in him the breath of life so that man became a living soul. Everything that would be identified with you physically was also identified with you spiritually. They are one. Everything that you have, you owe to the Lord. He then adds your mind or your intelligence all belongs to your capabilities and your incapabilities are to God's and for God's glory. And lastly, your strength, your willpower. You get up and you will something. You desire something, and those desires, those efforts, become under the authority and under the priority of the Most High God. And so Jesus gives them that But then he quickly adds, love your neighbor as yourself, as he quotes Leviticus 19.18. Since they're looking for an all-inclusive command, and he uses the word neighbor, Jesus here is telling you that everyone is your neighbor, Jew and Gentile. Jesus makes these two commands a unity, and even though they're two commands, they're one expression now, combining them has come somewhat commonplace for you and I today. We, we often will say that the same thing, having seen it in the Bible, but you need to understand at that moment in time, we're looking at a concept that's revolutionary. 
The Shema is complemented by the responsibility of loving one's neighbor. And loving the neighbor is the chief means of loving God. When you love someone because you're in obedience to God, loving a neighbor is loving God. Proving you love God expresses itself in love for a neighbor. That's why 1 John can say it this way. Beginning in verse 19 of chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his neighbor, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his neighbor. So family, simply put, without loving a person, a love of God has no foundation. How do you validate that love? How do you show that love? How do you express a loyalty and a priority for the Most High God if it doesn't show itself out into the world? Now let me show you, share you and express to you a caution. You don't love people just because they're people. You love people because God wants you to love people. If you just love people, that's, that's a, a humanism. Um, I, I just love you because I want to be, be a likable guy, and I, I want to share my loyalty to you. Well, as, as, as good as that might feel, when it comes to a walk with the Lord, we love each other, first and foremost, because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins for each and every one of us. And now having, having accepted that gift, wanting that gift, and wanting to serve Jesus in light of that gift, we now love each other. And in light of that, James can tell us this in 2.26. He says, For as a body apart from the Spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. We validate who we are and what we've accomplished in Christ Jesus by living out the demands of the cross. I want you to notice how this ends. The scribe looked to Jesus and says, you've done well. As if the scribe, if you will, is the, the teacher or the professor in front of the class and goes, man, you gave a good answer. Jesus turns the whole thing on a dime. He will not be beholding to that scribe as if he answered a good question. But he looks to the scribe and he reads the heart of the scribe and essentially says, you're pretty close. You're pretty close. And it comes down to the fact that the scribe gave to the Father exactly what Jesus expected the scribe to give to the Father, but there yet was no submission to the Son. And Jesus, capable of looking into the heart of the individual, recognized that he has one great responsibility, to submit to the Savior Jesus Christ, that the kingdom and repentance were under the, sub, the support and the identification of who Jesus Christ was, and come to him. 
And so family, as we look at these foundational questions, they really come down to a reminder of the same thing. Have we and do we live in a constant submission to who Jesus Christ is? Jesus Christ is the ultimate one who validated government. Jesus Christ is the ultimate one who gives us the confidence of what eternity is going to hold. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is going to give us a priority and a purpose by which we live life. And so we look down and go, wow, how does that begin? Well, it begins with identifying exactly who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did for us when he died on the cross. Never, ever belittle why you come to church. You come to church each and every week, not because the coffee's good, not because the, the, the morning treat is wonderful. You come because your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for your sins. The Lord and Savior offered you a salvation full and free without any expectation on your part to change, to fix up, to look good. And in that, you and I have accepted a free gift. And in that free gift, we see a, a life change, a partnership that comes with the arrival of the Holy Spirit in our heart and life to be with us always. And each and every week, we gather in His name to do one thing, to praise and thank Him. But we have the privilege of living from Sunday to Sunday, showing the world exactly what we have we get to show them what it means to have a sovereign God in control of who we are as citizens. We have the privilege of living a life knowing that the tomorrow for us has eternity within it. And we look forward to that day and we can have a freedom that is less fearful. We can have a confidence that is greater. And then we can look down and recognize everyone who's gone before us is waiting. So the writer of Hebrews could call them a great cloud of witnesses, present tense, vitally participants. And we look forward to joining that eternal group of people. Is that who you are in Christ? If it is, then praise Him. If not, begin to ask yourself the tough question, what do I need to do to realign my life with what I declare that I believe? And begin the journey that the questions raised give confidence in believing. Father, we just ask that you watch over us today. Dear God, as we close out this time together, both by, by home audience, dear God, those who are watching, may you also have confidence there as you watch by Facebook to those of us who are gathered in Jesus' name here, that, dear God, we remember why a relationship with you is important. Dear God, it's not private and personal. It's public. It's out there. It's expressive. Father, we cannot be good American citizens if we are not submitted 
to the Most High God. And in that submission, we might come to different conclusions. But dear God, we always will love one another. We will support and submit to the Lord even when it may hurt us by being patriots. Dear God in heaven, it gives us a confidence to know that when we close our eyes on this side, even though I don't know what the tomorrow is, I do know that I have a Savior who said, I go to prepare a place for you, that you'll be with me. And Father, we also have a purpose to live, to show everyone that we know and love and follow the Most High God, and we give Him every aspect of who we are, and that, dear God, we show what we've given you by living it out to our neighbors. So, dear God in heaven, watch over us today that we may sing with gusto in praise and that we may live that same confidence to those who are watching us each and every week and know that we have proclaimed the Savior in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.